talk about films and books as empathy machines. For me, this is what Rachel Kaloff's story is. It's an empathy machine. It is like being in her shoes. It is like being that person. And if you can imagine being that person, then somehow you can't imagine treating such a person like an insect. Welcome to the Book Society Podcast. My guest today is Marilyn Johnson, the best-selling author of The Deadbeat, This Book is Overdue, which is a book about librarians and how librarians and cyber librarians can help save the world. And my personal favorite title, Lives and Ruins, Archaeologists, and the Seductive Lure of Human Rubble. Among many other things, many other articles and so on, Marilyn Johnson is also a fellow, was a fellow at the Purchase Writer Center, which SUNY purchases my alma mater. There we go. Marilyn Johnson. The book we're reading today is Rachel Koloff's story, and it is in very short terms a story of a European Russian Jew who moves to the United States and ends up living in South Dakota in the 1890s. You have no idea of the tribulations in store. You know, you think about homesteaders, and I think of people who moved to South Dakota in the 1890s and lived in houses and farmed. But I just never thought about the details of it, that they got there and there was literally nothing there. Nothing except trouble. (laughs) The thing that I found the most interesting about this book is that it takes place in a time when the world is really divided into how we lived pretty much from 1000 AD until about the 19th century and the modern city. So if you were to meet Rachel Koloff in the city of her birth, which was... In the Ukraine, yeah. You would recognize that place. You'd probably be able to find a butcher and a baker and you as a modern person could get through it. But then if you were to see her 20 years later where she lived in South Dakota, she was basically a peasant dirt farmer. It's just really interesting that the world at that time was really both things. It was this cosmopolitan metropolis that it sort of is today, and it was also completely primitive. I just hadn't thought about that. (laughs) I hadn't thought that that was what she was going from one to the other. So why, Marilyn, did you choose this book? I chose this book because it was, unlike some of the other books that I read, nobody had told me about it. I don't even remember how I found it. But it came to me in the mail, and I sat down to look at it at night, and I did not go to sleep until I had finished it. Now, it is a short book. It doesn't have chapters. It's complete in like 100 pages, but it's one story. It is like one gasp of this woman writing down her memories of growing up as an abused orphan who has to leave her little brothers and sister and take the best offer. She wants to marry a butcher. She falls in love with the son of a butcher. Now, a butcher in the old country, you would think would be a good bet, right? If you read, for instance, a girl with a pearl earring, a butcher is like you'd eat. (laughs) Even if there were famine, you would eat if you married a butcher. But no, she was going to ruin her family if she married this butcher. The only out for her, the only way for her to survive was to become a mail order bride. And because she was Jewish, because she spoke Yiddish, 
she had a connection through multiple people, many layers, a connection to somebody who was looking for a bride in the Dakotas in the United States. And she accepts this offer and goes, she's impoverished. She has nothing. She has a change of clothes, I think. And she's picked up by this guy she doesn't know who she's about to marry. And she goes to this place. I mean, there are cities there, there are suburbs there, there are places that you would recognize and box stores, but it's also wide open prairie. It's the place where pretty much anything that's there has been built. And she gets off and there's a wagon load of his relatives who look to her like animals. The women are wearing men's boots. The men are barefoot because the women have borrowed the men's boots for the special occasion of welcoming their new wife. And she begins by marrying this guy and sleeping in a dugout through a harsh winter with dozens of chickens, her mother-in-law, her father-in-law, and these two brute brothers. That's her honeymoon. There's not enough food. They're freezing. They don't have shoes. It's so sad. She actually comes out and says it, that they were living like animals. And she realized, I don't want to do this. I don't want to live like an animal. My whole job is going to be to try to be as civilized as possible, no matter how hard this whole task becomes. One of the things that I was intrigued by was that before she was a mail order bride in the Dakotas, she was a maid at a rich lady's house. And so in probably six months of her life, she went from living in a house that may have even had electricity to living, as you said, in this dugout in the middle of the prairie in South Dakota. And the episode about marrying the butcher was so strange because she was an orphan and she was dirt poor, but she came from a good family. So her family, instead of allowing her to marry into a marriage that would have been secure and stable for her, they couldn't allow her to do that because it would have brought shame upon the family. But they also wouldn't help her in any way. It was awful. And to think of being that unfriended and that abused and that impoverished and to show up and to find your answer is a worse situation is horrifying. And she actually likes this guy that she's marrying. So the travails go on. That's a trope in literature is the hardships of surviving the frontier or the wilderness, where people through their ingenuity, through their hard work, face trouble after trouble after trouble and do not lose hope, even though she ends up giving birth to like nine children in this dugout, in these horrible, harsh conditions. It totally ruins her health. But she ends up living in St. Paul, Minnesota, it's really incredible what the span of her life is. So she is an excellent housekeeper, keeps her dugout clean. She whitewashes the walls. She manages to educate the children. She just does all of this stuff, like resourcefully figuring out how to improve their situation. And they end up being the center of Jewish life in South Dakota, getting citations from the president for their efforts to educate the children of the community. I just couldn't put it down. And I thought her voice was 
fabulous. And I would not have known anything about this story otherwise. You just don't think about the privation and the way that people live out there. And I was thinking when we were reading Rachel Koloff's story that even when I thought of it, I thought, oh, okay, she's moving to the country. And that's probably what she thought, because nowhere in Europe is like the Great Plains. The Western United States from the 100th parallel onwards is the biggest arid desert anywhere. And so she probably thought she was moving to the country. And then she got there and realized she was in the literal wilderness. There was this moment where she described that there was no landmarks, that you couldn't even know what direction you were walking in because there was nothing to look at. So you could get lost in the grass. I mean, they had to go to the bathroom, but getting in and out of the shed where they lived, the difficulty factor is mind boggling. But she and her husband, in order to have conversations, and I assume intimate relations, had to go out to the grass. I mean, they had to go take a walk. I give her a tremendous amount of credit. Her children apparently loved hearing the stories. Here's one story that just blew my mind. So you have two kids. The second kid is the complication because while you're having great events like the birth of a second child, there is another little kid that has to be taken care of. So here they are in the confines of this place. It is brutal winter, brutal blizzards and everything. You can't even see where you're going. So she's doing it without a doctor, just with the mother-in-law. The mother-in-law who is so old school that during Rachel's entire wedding, she had to be blindfolded. That was the law, okay? So that's how primitive. She's having this second baby. The first baby is running around. They're trying to pacify that baby. They take the baby and so the baby doesn't freeze while they're attending to the afterbirth. They get the lid of the stove to keep the baby warm, nearby to keep the baby warm. Unfortunately, the lid was in contact with the baby. So the baby has these terrible burns. Reading this wound turns out to be a big dramatic trauma in their lives and affected the child as she was growing up. We had to park the baby. We had other things going on. This is very present for me because I have two very young sons and I've very recently been involved in two births. Well, not really involved, present for two births. I didn't have much to do. And it's a traumatic experience, even in the controlled environment of a hospital. And I was thinking about this when I was reading this book that it's, I can't imagine. I mean, I just can't imagine it. I'm surprised that my wife and I and the baby made it through it with the attendance of 100 nurses and doctors and this infrastructure. I can't believe that they just gave birth in a shack without a doctor. And in 1895, it's unclear how helpful a doctor would have been anyway. They consulted a doctor at some point and the doctor was drunk. How did she put it? She said that he was totally drunk most of the time and the rest of the time he was completely drunk. <laughs> right. It's <laughs> just like <laughs> useless. There's something so addictive about these stories, right? About the frontier women making it work. And these stories, they all sort of go from wilderness into the modern era. And it's worth mentioning that this book was discovered after Rachel Koloff's death. Her kids discovered a leather-bound journal that she had handwritten all of this in. And it was in Yiddish. It was translated by one of her sons. 
It was a story worth telling, and she told it carefully and with some art. Someone found it in the Jewish women's archives, and I guess her children got involved. They tried to publish it, and finally, Indiana University Press brought it out. That's how you move humanity forward. You don't necessarily know what to record or what is going to be interesting later or what is going to be essential information later. And so if someone has an obsession, society will often let them record it and at least do their thing. Ashurbanipal was the first to do this. He was the ruler of Nineveh. 5,000 years before present, something like that. And he collected a big library of cuneiform tablets. And his city was destroyed in fire, which was a horrific event for the people who lived there, but a fantastic event for archaeologists because it basically baked all these clay tablets. And that's how we know about the Sumerian civilization. Maybe he wasn't the first, but he was the first that we have a record of to say, I want to collect all of the information that humans have collected and put it in one place. And that is really how we know that that civilization existed. If younger people listened to older people, including myself, including everybody, we would have jetpacks and flying cars and sustainable fuel by now. It's just that everybody seems to need to learn everything the hard way all the time. So if you can leave these little touchstones for people, that's really helpful. So this is a book that I discovered in a footnote. It's called A Gap in Nature, Discovering the World's Extinct Animals. They did beautiful illustrations, reconstructions of these animals that are extinct. They are beautiful pictures. And then there is a beautifully written tribute to the animal and a discussion about how they know what it looks like. You read it and your breath is taken away thinking about what a heroic task it is to make something like this, to reclaim some lost flooded place. It's amazing to think about the effort that goes into that. And it's such specific interest, but it's important to, I don't know, is it important to remember lost species? What do you think? Is it important and why? I find it fascinating, but if we never knew the dodo bird existed, what would we have lost? I do think it is theoretically important to raise questions like this, but my heart stops when you say that, because is this not the most important thing that we do? What? It's just something that we're going to just die someday and that's it? No, I think really our task is to claim as much as we can, to pay tribute, to bear witness to as much as we can. And if it's not about that, then I don't really know what it's about. (laughs) I really don't. Really, do you want all of that loss? Do you want to just burn your past? I don't. I saw too much. (laughs) I just like, and I needed to see more, I felt. It's hard to imagine when you're doing something that it would ever be forgotten because it's so present. And then the further away it gets, the more the details recede, the harder it is to find information about it. And it's hard to know what to hold on to. And then it gets to the point generations later where you need a team of PhDs to reconstruct what you might have had for breakfast. I'm fascinated by archaeology, and I'm an amateur student of archaeology, and I think it's important and it tells us so much about our present, but it is very easy to make the argument that it's pointless. I only say this because someone has to pay for it. It's always easy for politicians to point to a bunch of PhDs digging in the dirt in Missouri and say, why are we doing that? What could we possibly gain from that? But we do gain something from learning about our past. 
And I guess what I'm trying to get from you is what do you think it is that we gain? People talk about films and books as empathy machines. For me, this is what Rachel Kaloff's story is. It's an empathy machine. It is like being in her shoes, even though she had no shoes. It is like being that person. And if you can imagine being that person, then somehow you can't imagine treating such a person like an insect. You cannot dismiss their life. You cannot disregard them and their needs and considerations. And so as a humanist, as a person in the world, anything that highlights how deeply human we all are is a task worth doing. Somehow capturing little bits of archaeology, they're so fragmented. They're so theoretical sometimes. This evidence of earlier humans, even if it was humans who were here five minutes ago, or humans who didn't look like humans, looked more like chimpanzees. If you find that they gathered flowers, if you find that they buried their dead, if you find that they died with their arms around each other, I mean, if you find any evidence of that, what is that worth? You can't put a price on that to me. And I will pretend even to be that politician who says, well, we have to make choices and all this sort of thing. Yeah, we have to make choices to honor and regard every human endeavor as something that is worth consideration, worth respect. The most powerful place in Pompeii, the Roman city that was buried under a volcano suddenly and completely preserved. But the most powerful place to me is there are these little stands that have two big holes in a counter. And it's food carts. Yeah, it's fast food. You would get some garum and some rice, and there's little like things where people can sit. When I saw that, I was just like, they had a McDonald's. They would come and get some food and hang out and talk about whatever was on their mind. And that is exactly the same thing that we did, and then the same thing that we do. And it really just highlights that psychologically, these people were pretty much identical to us. And if you took someone from Pompeii, taught them English, and dropped them in New York City, they'd be just fine. They could teach you some stuff. People make that argument all the time. It's like, sure, we'll be great with humans, but what about animals? Why do we need to take care of animals and stuff? And, or why do we need to take care of people who have what we used to call disabilities? Well, the thing is that if you treat and honor and listen to and bear witness to what people are doing, you can find out that such a thing that we used to call a handicap actually enhances all of the other adaptive properties that the person has. That in fact, our idea of the actual ideal human is a crazy notion. It's an invented notion. The fact that animals don't bear compassion, that we don't have time for compassion, that we don't have resources for that kind of compassionate approach to animals is very limiting. We're as human as we treat the most vulnerable among us. And the most vulnerable is not just the most vulnerable humans. How do you treat the insects around your house? How do you treat the birds around your house? Do you treat them as pests? Do you run around with a jar of poison, trying to poison the things that you view as other, I think you need to figure out how to live with them. So 
that's a very Buddhist perspective. And in another episode, we talked about how there's no ethical consumption in capitalism. And this is kind of the same idea where you're right in theory that it's important to be compassionate to all living things, but that has to have a limit somewhere because, you know, I live in the West, obviously in Los Angeles, and there are rattlesnakes everywhere. And a rattlesnake anywhere near my house is a death sentence for the rattlesnake. If it wants to live in a pit with the other pit vipers, I guess that's fine. If it comes near my kids, it's dead. End of story. Of course. And I state that as kind of an ideal. Obviously, I don't like carpenter ants running around the deck. And I am a murderer of carpenter ants. But it's also from the perspective of how do you feel and where do you learn and what do you want to read about? I try to be maximally open to stories If somebody wants to tell me a story from the point of view of a cockroach, I'm there for it. Because what does it cost you to try on that radical empathy? It costs almost nothing in terms of my time. And what I get in terms of the reward, I mean, how many nerve endings come to life by reading about the other, by reading about someone who might have lived thousands of years ago, by reading about a potential imagined cyber human being, whatever the imaginative properties are, you want to embrace them if you are in the writing business. Somebody constructed cities in our brain and walls and very high walls of concrete and crawling over those and finding out what is happening elsewhere. It's a very rich way to look at the world. Well, I agree with you, but I don't think that anyone truly looks at the world that way. I wish that you were right. And I think that you were right sometimes, but it's also incredibly terrifying and risky to put yourself in someone else's shoes because you might find out that everything that you knew is wrong and that every perspective that you had is incorrect. And there's a reason why if you are a political left person in the United States, you probably don't watch Fox News or the other way around. I have the same beliefs as you that I think that the more information you have, the better. But it's also a scary proposition that there is a combination of words that someone could say to me that would make me think that the 45th president of the United States was right about everything. I don't know what that combination of words is, but if I read widely, I might encounter it and then realize that I was wrong about everything in the universe. That's possible. And that's a risk that you take every time you open a book. That is the reason why people put limits on what they ingest and what they want to find out. In the story of Mesopotamian archaeology, what really got it paid for was Hormuz Drasam finding the Tablets of Gilgamesh, which describe the flood story and have a character like Noah that survives the flood by building an ark. And it tells this story, and this story obviously predates the Bible. So they had to warp this information into proving that the Bible is true instead of realizing what it was, was that the stories collected in the Bible are folk tales that are thousands of years old. So there's a danger to finding out information. I guess that's what I'm saying is that Every time you read something, every time you learn something about someone else, and every time you experience empathy for someone else, there's a danger that it might disrupt your worldview and make you have to reevaluate everything that you do. And that's extremely costly for a human. That's what I hope every time I open a book. The weirder and stranger the story, the better. To my mind, a demonstrably human tale that tells me a story that I could not have imagined and that I could not have lived 
is the most delicious hot fudge sundae I can think of. I was in a book club with people who really require it of a novel, that there be somebody sympathetic who reminds them of them. And I just think, oh, well, (laughs) really? (laughs) Why would you want that? You already know you. I want raw material. I want to howl from the wilderness. That's what I'm really looking for. I think that Rachel Kaloff's story is a great example of that. There is sort of a through line in this podcast of early life in the American West. This is a perspective that we're missing was the Jewish homesteaders in South Dakota. I mean, the through line is essentially nobody should be able to live here, but millions of people do. Right. And there are very specific and deliberate reasons why that is the case that have been paid for by the U.S. government. It's really interesting to listen to a story from someone else's perspective and hear of how we got where we are. So I ask everyone on the podcast to recommend one book by a living author and one book by a deceased author to our audience. Oh, my gosh. Well, a living author who I really adore is Pete Dexter. And he's somebody that I know. And speaking of the Dakotas, he's based in South Dakota. And he's written some fabulous novels and some very funny nonfiction. The novel's very serious. And I think The Paperboy, like a perfect novel. Somebody Dead. Oh, my gosh. I thought Middlemarch was kind of fabulous. But you've already thought of Middlemarch? Oh, we can recommend Middlemarch again. Everyone should read it. It really changed my life. And when I put it down, I mean, to me, it has as devastating an ending as Ian McEwan's Atonement. Marilyn, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for picking this book. It's fantastic. Lucas, that was fun. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Follow the Book Society podcast on Instagram at Book Society Pod. Follow me on Instagram at Lucas D. Cantor. You can reach me through my website, which is lucascantormusic.com. If you go to the contact us thing, that email goes straight to me. You can Google me and probably find my phone number. I encourage you to get in touch. I encourage you to be friends. The whole reason I started this podcast is to talk about interesting books with interesting people. And that doesn't just mean my guests. It means anyone who's listening to the podcast. So please reach out. Let's be friends. Book Society podcast is hosted by me, Lucas Cantor, and edited by Santiago Ramones. You can check out Santiago's podcast, Bit Depth, anywhere you get podcasts. Wherever you're listening to this podcast, you can probably also hear his, and I highly recommend it. She and her husband, in order to have conversations, and I assume intimate relations, had to go out to the grass. I mean, they had to go take a walk. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like there's a euphemism there that has maybe been lost. A roll in the hay. (laughs) I think that's where that's from. (laughs) 